Hey everybody, welcome to The Afterword. I'm Dave Tish. This is where we talk about what we didn't get to talk about in the previous week. And this past weekend, there was a lot we didn't get to talk about because we covered a topic that's incredibly expansive, whether or not science and religion are in conflict. So I thought for this Afterword, it would be great to talk to an actual scientist. So on the show today is Dr. Jason Rosé, who is not only the head of the science department of a local high school here in the Bay Area, but also has a PhD in pharmacology and was a principal researcher up at San Francisco State University, who was part of a team that did the medical research and found some of the scientific breakthroughs that allowed for the development of the drugs that were used to treat AIDS during the AIDS epidemic of the late 80s and early 90s. Fascinating story. It was a fascinating conversation. So let's jump in and talk about science and religion. Welcome to the Afterword, everybody. I I'm so excited uh, because I have on the show with with, with us here Doc Rose. Now he goes by Doc Rose uh, mostly because that's what all of his students and his colleagues call him. He is uh, the head of the science department at the King's Academy, a local high school here in the Bay Area. It's actually not just a high school; it's a high school and, and a middle school. Uh, and Doc, you've taught there for how many years? Have you taught there? This is my twenty fifth. 25th year and uh actually his real name is 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 actually jason rose but we're going to call him doc rose here for for this and he goes by doctor because you you you're you have a doctorate and and so why don't you tell the folks um what your doctorate's in and kind of how you became um you know the the head of the science department oh well see i didn't duck fast enough um no (laughs) so i um I actually did an undergraduate degree in chemistry and biology at Whitman College in Eastern Washington. And then I came to UC San Francisco to do a PhD in pharmacology. I don't think I entirely knew what that was uh, when I signed up, but they let me in and I wound up doing HIV drug discovery work uh, between 1989 and 1994-95. Um, we were basically working on the protease inhibitors before they existed. So if, if you all have heard about those, those are the the first really effective drugs we had to treat HIV, um, but we were working out some of the nuts and the bolts of the basic science, trying to figure out, you know, how we were going to throw a monkey wrench in this thing. Um, so that's, I did my PhD there. And then I realized I'd been working on a virus that destroys the immune system and I didn't know any immunology. So I moved down to Stanford to do a postdoc uh, in a lab that was doing viruses and immunology. And I was there for I was there for about a year and then God started nudging me that it was time to move on, which was, that was not the plan. Uh, the plan was to go on and, you know, finish my postdoc and go get an academic job at a college somewhere doing research. And it was, God made it very clear that that was not the plan, not his plan at least. Um, and at the time Kings was very small. I think it was 250, maybe right. 175 kids and probably 12 staff members. And they, they needed a chemistry teacher and somebody who could also do biology and physical science. And that was me. So amazing. They were desperate and I was desperate and it worked out great. So, so yeah. So let's talk, yeah, that's in, incredible. Let's talk about that. Cause 1989, we still don't know that much about the AIDS virus. We don't know much about virology. And so some of the stuff you're working on literally is trailblazing science and would be used to save the lot, develop drugs that would save the lives of literally 
probably millions of people oh tens of millions of this tens of millions of people so talk to me about that because that that that's just a a, kind of an unprecedented moment because up to that point aids really was the most dangerous and deadly thing that we had seen and it was spreading to children it was spreading uh, across the globe and and so talk to me about that experience um, you know, it's kind of a weird thing, you know, when you work on something like this, everybody's like, oh, it must have been amazing. It's like, well, you know, I was in the lab six or seven days a week, 12 hours a day, kind of grinding out basic experiment. It didn't seem that glamorous from the inside, um, but I'm very nuts and bolts. I mean, I really like working with my hands and I'm right. hyperkinetic. So, so it worked out really well. And I just, you know, I love doing experiments and figuring out how things work. So I, it was a sense that there were a whole bunch, there was actually a, five, a group of five laboratories at UCSF that were all collaborating on this project and each lab kind of had its own section and we were all, we, you know, we definitely felt the sense that we were sort of pushing this thing forward. Um, I don't think any of us thought we were going to cure AIDS, but we were definitely like, people have got to work on this now. And I realized that in the movies and on TV, it's, oh, the scientist goes into the lab and makes a discovery and it's over. And we're like, this is going to take decades. I mean, we knew this was going to be years and years. And you just kind of put your head down and grind it out a day a week, a month, a year at a time, trying to make progress. And, you know, biology is twitchy and doesn't always cooperate. So right. It gets frustrating and, but you know, you, and every now and then you make a breakthrough and like, Hey, this is really cool. We can do something with this. So yeah, it was, it was an interesting time to, to be in the field. I will say it was kind of a, it's very stressful living in San Francisco at the oh, peak totally. of the AIDS epidemic. Oh yeah. Feeling like, do you guys, and you know, people are complaining and telling you you're not working hard enough. Like, do you have any idea how much work I'm doing? Yeah. Uh, it was, it's, it's really, it's really interesting. And I, at the time, um, so we, we made, you know, we made some significant discoveries. We developed a, a protocol for a potential gene therapy that, that at the time, so it's like, oh, this is cool and technical. And at that time I had started to really step back, um, from the molecular details of HIV and start looking more at the cultural and the social effects, um, hmm. which is where my interest in epidemiology comes from. And I began to realize that, you know, all the really high tech expensive solutions in the world are never going to fix this problem. So, you know, you can work in a lab, you can develop all these cool things, but that's not going to solve the problem in sub-Saharan Africa where people don't have access to this kind of therapy and care. And so I felt I really needed to kind of move on and do something else. Wow. But yeah, it's, and you know, we made some discoveries, the drug companies made similar discoveries and capitalized on them and developed protease inhibitors. We're like, this is great. I mean, we're all excited that it happened and everybody got their own piece of piece of stuff to do, but yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say I got disillusioned necessarily, but I just realized that that therapy alone is not the solution to the AIDS crisis. And yeah, that was one of the reasons why I felt it was time to move on. Right, right. Um, so, it- yeah, so let's talk about that, because from what age did you realize that science was your bend, that it was your jam, that this was kind of how you liked and thought about things? When did you discover that about yourself? Five or six, probably. Did- um, I've, I've always been fascinated by how things work. Um, I tore everything apart when I was a kid trying to figure out how it worked. Sometimes I could put it back together and sometimes I couldn't. Um, I really, I have my brother, so I have an identical twin, which is kind of freaky in and of itself, but we're both really, really, uh, oriented towards information and truth. Like, how does it work? Don't lie to me. Don't give me right. the, you know, here's what you tell the preschoolers skim over is like, tell me how it works explain to me i really need to know 
Um, for example, I, I could not learn how to drive a stick shift until somebody explained to me how the transmission worked. It's like, I need to wow. know this because I need to know what I'm doing. Cause I don't, you know, I, I, that's just how I operate. So it wasn't that you needed to know where first gear was. You needed to know what was going on in the gearbox and the mechanisms of the mechanics of the thing in order to drive it. That's right. that was your level of inquisitiveness. Yeah, I need. I just I just want to know what's going on. I don't want somebody to say, "Well, just do this." It's like, no, 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 no. I don't just do this. I do things for a reason, and I need to know what the reasons are, and I need to know mm. you know how the world is structured. And you know, as you get older and you you start asking bigger questions, uh, so you know, my parents are. And this is another kind of way out there thing. My parents were Christian scientists, so I was not raised Christian. Um, and my dad's a geologist. By that, by by Christian scientists, you don't mean scientists who were Christian. No, I definitely you, mean Christian scientists, as in the non-Christian cult, right? Right. So, so, um, so they're but they're very big on education. They're very big on learning, and huh. so that kind of helped because they were willing to accommodate my eccentricities and like explain these things to me and buy me sets of encyclopedias to read and things like that. Um, and that's what I used to do. I just used to sit down and read encyclopedias because I huh. really wanted to know all this stuff um, at whatever level I could understand it. And then you go back and read it again the next year and you pick up more stuff. But um, so, yeah, that's always sort of been the way I've been wired. I just really want to know how everything works. So this chemistry in the long run. Right. So this insatiable uh, kind of quest for information and truth. Mm hmm. Coupled with the fact your parents were in a uh, a practicing religion that was not uh, it wasn't Christian, how in the world did Christianity and Jesus begin to interact your story? Because I can I can see that played out a hundred thousand times. Most of the time, it's going to result in agnosticism or uh, an, an anger at religion. How did that happen? Well, that's exactly what happened. Ironically enough, I I quit going to church at the age of eight. Um, you're like, I've had enough. <laughs> no, I was like, this is ridiculous. Uh, and, wow, you know, really? it's, it's a really, well, like I said, I was sort of precocious and possibly annoying, but it's um, a little contrarian there, too. It sounds there, like a little, there wasn't a lot of truth that, well, the great thing about being in Christian science is like, you'll find your own path. It's fine. If you don't want to go to church, it's okay. I'm like, well, that's convenient. Um, leaves you without a whole lot of guidance as an eight year old. Um, but yeah, it was, I just, the things I was hearing in church and the things that I was learning, you know, as you know, by reading in science and everything, we're, we're really not lining up. And a lot of the people that I was trying to get information and answers from were telling me things that were a, either not true or ridiculous. And I thought, well, if this is what the church has to offer, I'm done. And that was it. And I just, I basically went agnostic or I guess I was an atheist at that point because I was pretty upset with the whole concept of God. And that was, that was really me until I was 22. So 22 I so you're probably years near the end of college first year i mean undergraduate second year, grad, second year of grad school oh wow so you are precocious um, okay I, well i was yeah well i skipped a grade and you know whatever my parents were trying to get me out of the house so they started me early. i feel like that was a humble brag i feel like you wanted to slip that in there it's like people who go to stanford have to say they went to stanford i see i feel like you wanted to say you skipped a grade <laughs> one and a half grades but whatever oh, oh! <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, no, so you're there, you're in, you're in grad school and then what happens? Uh, well, so I tell my students sometimes like, you know, the thing is that if you're really, really smart and you're really capable and you're pretty well insulated from the harshness of reality, uh, you can get along pretty well without God for a while. Ooh. Um, Ooh. there was some stuff that happened to me in college. that was pretty atrocious. Uh, my best mm. friend was murdered when I was a sophomore. Oh my gosh. Um, and you know, I have an identical twin. I've mentioned this before and he and I are really, really close. And I left home at 
14 to go to boarding school and did not really connect with anybody after that. And so I was sort of lonely. Uh, wow. very, I felt very isolated. Uh, I was in, he was in Indonesia and I was in Arizona. So opposite sides of the planet, you don't get to talk very much. And I got to college and this, this guy who wound up being my roommate my sophomore year, he and I, you know, we had the same kind of connection that my brother and I had. And oh, so he man. was, he was kind of, I wouldn't say surrogate family necessarily, but it was that kind of, right. You felt that brotherhood, like this yeah, guy absolutely. is, good, yeah. And then he was murdered at the end of my sophomore year. Oh my God. And that put this... me into a bit of a tailspin. <laughs> I, I can't imagine. Like what were the, situ... just not to get into the lure details, but what was the situation? Um, it was, I, I mean, it's, it's the newspaper reports that it was a love triangle. Um, jealous ex-boyfriend took him out and shot him unbelievable um, yeah it was it was kind of nuts and was that was that where was that where was that what state that was it that was at whitman college that was a, unbelievable yeah and so the tragedy descends the loneliness descends well and, and the absolute violent anger descends i mean i oh my goodness i'm um a fairly passionate individual i'd keep a lid on it most of the time but i was just furious and I, I i had left home one of the reasons i decided to go to boarding school is that i was just really angry and i didn't know why and i just thought getting away with my family would solve this problem didn't really solve the problem hmm. and then this happened and i was just i mean you know deep dark tailspin and i don't didn't really know how to cope with that obviously sure sure i don't think anybody does and no, i know right like, of course my tendency is you should put your head down you muscle through it but there's just this festering I mean, yeah, I would call yeah. it sepsis of the soul, basically. Although, mm. you know, at the time I wouldn't have agreed that there was a soul, so it's no big deal. I was just really, really, really angry. And I kind of, you know, hacked through my next couple of years at Whitman and was just happy to be gone. Um, and I got to grad school and I thought, well, you know, I'm out of the situation. I, you know, that's all been resolved. I cut all my ties to everybody there and I'm going to start over. But, you know, wherever you go, there you are. Right. And I dragged exactly. all this toxic waste yeah. in with me. Yeah. And then, you yeah. know, when you go to grad school, you're stuck for five years, six years. You can't get away. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I was and the other. So the other thing is that I was I'm a perfectionist or I'm a recovering perfectionist. But at the time I was not recovering. I was definitely a perfectionist. And that means you just have to be right all the time and you have to do everything right all the time. And you can't forgive yourself for making mistakes. And you know you make mistakes, and science is all about failure, as I tell my students. It is, yeah. There's a like, lot this of failure. Is how you learn, uh, prepare yep. to fail, fail hard, and fail fast. Um, but it was, it just really started to weigh me down uh, Man. in grad school, and I basically sort of, I was consumed by my work because I thought this was going to provide meaning and distract me from sure. all the stuff I didn't want to cope with. Sure. And then about, well, like I said, about two years in, I. Uh, pretty much and my research was going really well i was getting great results everybody's like oh well this is what this is what science is about it's like getting results and making progress and you're supposed to feel amazing and i just wanted to die frankly i hated my own existence wow. and um my brother had become a christian the year before which what? i viewed as the ultimate betrayal oh um, my goodness he and i have very similar stories uh, sure. in the sense that we both sort of went through this massive crisis and and you know so what happened, and he and his wife and their church started praying for me, which, you know, thanks very much because my life imploded, right, as it needed to. And uh, I, I decided to kill myself. Literally, I had a plan. I was ready to roll. I would, you know, and the week before I did it, I was planning to do it. 
a friend of mine that I met invited me to church in, in Santa Clara. And I thought, you know, I'm going to be dead in a week. Doesn't matter. Might as well go. Might be entertaining. And um, they, uh, it's funny. They had a guest pastor at the church who was, he was actually an evangelist in India. And he laid out the truth about who Jesus is and what the gospel really is. Not all this weird stuff I've been raised with this, you know, non-Christian Christianity kind of stuff. And it was, Hey, you know, if you're down and you're in despair because of sin and all this stuff in your life, Jesus, Jesus can forgive you. And that's great. I needed to hear that because I have never been able to forgive myself for anything. So like Jesus can forgive you and give you a purpose and a hope. And I'm like, I want a piece of that because if it's either that or I'm dead in a week, you know, and that wow. was, that was it. it but it's, uh, you know, when you're really competent and really capable, God sometimes has to break everything away from you to get you to pay attention. Yeah. And I'm, you know, it's one of those things where it's really funny. This, the person who invited me to church called. So this is my brother's wife's best friend. She called my brother's wife and said, Hey, went to church and, my brother and his wife freaked out. They were like, Oh my gosh, what, how did you, how did you pull that off? Cause they were, they were thought they thought I was pretty much an impossible case. Sure. But, uh, but yeah, I was boom right there, right then. And my brother had had a similar experience. So he went out and bought me a Bible. And the next week we met up and he had me this Bible. And that was, that was, that was where it was at. And I'm, you know, and I was not going to turn back. I mean, it's uh, people talk about, Oh, I just walked away from my faith. It's like, you realize that if I walk away with my faith, the only thing that waits for me is death. That's all I've got to look forward to. So I, yeah, I, I'm definitely, I was in full bore at that point, That's which was a really weird experience for somebody, you know, in grad school at UC San Francisco. (laughs) Sure. Sure. Um, Was there ever a point and and we're talking about this because, and we're talking to you as a scientist, because we're in the middle of the sermon series and this week we're talking about the fourth chapter of Dan Kimball's book, How Not to Read the Bible. And we're talking about, is the Bible anti-science? Uh, you, you, your story doesn't seem to hold either of these. It, you, they, they're not held in tension or oppositional. They, they, for, they seem to have been coexistent in you simultaneously. Yeah. Um, talk, about, talk about that. Do you, do you feel, how do you, how do you, as a, as a follower of Jesus, think about science, because this is a common objection sure. to, 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 to Christianity, that you have to become unthinking, you have to become um, superstitious and not thoughtful, you have, you know, all those things. So yeah. how do you, how did you, how do you process that as a, a both a PhD scientist and, and a follower of Jesus? All right, let's see, how are we going to do this? So I've been a scientist longer than I've been a Christian, right? <laughs> yeah, um, right. And science... So the thing is that science is about a search for truth with the belief that there is truth to be found. Right. So it's not postmodernism, right? Um, if anybody told me that, you know, every, all truth is relative, I would basically slap them and walk away because we all the, anybody who's worked in a lab knows it's not true. This is why they don't let me out in public. <laughs> but, and the thing, but it is the, and so the thing is that you are constantly searching for truth but the frontier the edge of knowledge is always expanding right always moving the edge you know that what you know today is may may not necessarily be true in six months and that's fine um the really interesting thing about being a scientist is that you're not committed to a particular set of facts because you know those facts may change now as you get further and further and further the stuff behind you becomes solidified and like okay this is we're pretty sure this is right okay 
but the stuff on the fringes is always the frontier, moving. right? It's yeah, moving. So there's right? you live with this. You learn to live with a certain, with a certain, with a comfortable, with a certain degree of uncertainty. Huh. Like, well, I and I don't know. It's like I don't know the answer to that. And so you know, people would always ask me, "When are you going to cure HIV?" I'm like, you know, I don't know. Here's what we know now. Um, I've been dealing with this for the entire pandemic. People are like, "What's going to happen next week?" I'm like, I don't know. I'll wait until I get the data. I don't make, I don't come to conclusions without information. And I don't always trust the information I have unless I've really dug in and made sure that it's valid and viable and reproducible because that's how experimental science proceeds. So I became a Christian, right? I did not become a Christian because the Christians had a better version of the truth in terms of physical reality than I did. And if somebody had tried to argue me into that, I would have gone the other way. Um, I became a Christian because I began to realize that there was a lot more to life than just materialistic information and the truth of the natural world. And I had no idea where to get any input for that. Hmm. I just like, hey, how do you deal with these problems with the soul and distress and despair and hatred and anger? And the answer is not from science and certainly not from a pill bottle. So what Christianity was offering me is, hey, there's this other entire aspect of reality that you have denied exists for since you were eight years old. And but it is tearing you apart. And how would you like a solution to this problem? And at that yeah. point, like, am I going to say no? Right, Absolutely right. not. So the funniest thing ever is that I came to Christ in a Mennonite church in Santa Clara. Mennonite. And, you know, the Mennonites are known for being highly progressive and sciencey, uh, <laughs> right? But the, but the people there, uh, two of them were electrical engineers. One of them was the head of the geology library at Stanford University. Wow. I mean, these people these people are trained in the sciences progressive mennonites (laughs) well you know you do what you got to do in the bay area right right um and they did not have any problems with this stuff um so it's um and yeah i mean there were definitely people who have had to deal with some of that whole you know how can i mean my my father actually thinks that i sort of decided to commit intellectual suicide by becoming a christian well um because there is a certain strain of christianity that has their own explanation this is what you know they talk about in this book obviously it's like well here is our version of the way the material world was created uh it's not based on science it's based on interpretation of scripture and if you know my dad's a geologist right so you don't spend a whole lot of time in the field before you figure out that you know this thing is old really old and really complicated and there's an awful lot of stuff that the bible doesn't talk about and what are we going to do um so yeah, he was he was a little concerned that I'd gone off the deep end. But the thing is that all of the scientific training I had and all of my observations about the natural world, those are still valid. Um, mm-hmm. I, I right. know what the evidence is and I know and, you know I, I know enough about the processes to be able to say, okay, this happened this way or you know I can't reconstruct past history, but I can say here is if we assume that reality works in a logical, orderly, and reasonable way, which I really do believe that the Bible teaches that, then this is a logical conclusion to draw about what is going on here or here or here. Yeah. So, and it was, you know, it's kind of funny. It's, I mean, it's a Mennonite church, but there was never any creation evolution debate there. There was no arguments about the age of the earth or anything there because, you know, it's like, we were okay with it. That was not, that is not creedal. Like the yes. issues are who is God? Who is Jesus? Who are you? Right. What is right. salvation? All the really critical bits. Yeah. That's what it's about. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, there's definitely a, 
Well, and this is, have you ever read a book called Galileo Goes to Jail? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, where they talk about the sort of the creation of the myth of the conflict between science and religion. Yeah, yeah. And that's that, so that became this sort of narrative in the end of the 19th century that then Christianity bought into and decided, okay, well, if there has to be conflict, then we're going to create some conflict. And then people started digging trenches and now here we are. Right. Um, I but you see that as fundamentally different realms of knowledge. One, they are, for the most part, what they are, I mean, certainly, I assume you've read John Walton's stuff. Yeah. Right. right. Functional versus hey, material origins. This right. is definitely, we are definitely addressing two very different kinds of thing here. Yeah. Uh, people yeah. are like, oh, I mean, the Bible is not a science textbook. Right. Uh, it was designed to be a science textbook because those are not the questions people were asking. Right. And so I don't feel like the Bible is making science claims that I then have to validate or invalidate. Right. Because it's, right. it's more about, like I said, um, when God creates man in his image, he gives him the wisdom and the knowledge and the intelligence that he needs to figure out the things about the material world for himself. God is communicating in the Bible things that we would never figure out on our own because we're deceived or we're you know deluded by our own. Or they're inaccessible. Or they're just not going to know. It's like, how am yeah. I supposed to know who God is if God does not reveal himself right. to me, right? Correct. Right. And so kind I guess revelation. the thing about that is um, I don't feel that God needs to tell us things that we can figure out on our own. Wow. So it's like, God does not need to tell me how old the universe is because he knows that eventually when that question becomes significant, we have the know-how and the ability to figure hmm. that out for ourselves. Hmm. So that is not what he's doing. And of course, you know, nobody in second millennium BC, Egypt or Palestine needs to know that. Right, right. It's like, so I'm, me, I'm creating, yeah. I'm going to communicate in your cultural context because this is what you really need to know. Now, we right. still need to know this. Um, the If the Bible was going to try and have you read Augustine's commentary on Genesis? Uh, I Not recently. Oh, it's fascinating. Uh, the most it's it's wild he basically you know i i had to study platonic philosophy in college for a semester yeah. which was almost yeah. killed me and but he's basically he's gonna he takes platonic philosophy and he interprets all of genesis in light of platonic philosophy and it's brilliant and it's completely wrong but it's how do i synthesize modern scientific thought with this and you're like you can do that but it's not necessarily helpful right um, right right Right. That's fascinating. It's, it's also not necessarily going to last. And so that's the, you know, because the state of scientific knowledge is always progressing. Sure. The state of revelation is pretty constant. Yeah. Yeah. Those okay. things, yeah, those things don't change, but science epistemologically is going to be shifting. Right. Right. So now let me ask you a question. You've interrupted uh, just to, to switch roles into the kind of the mentor teacher coach role. Sure. You've been around emerging generations, young people for a long time. Yeah. You have seen students in and, and because you, you work at a Christian private school, you're allowed to have these conversations um, out loud in the classroom, privately, all those things. What have you seen from your student body? Uh, and, and I'm just thinking like kind of more recently, too, because I know that generational questions do shift. And now with the advent of the Internet, of social media, um, that's it's there's new things, new challenges that are coming. What are you seeing in student bodies in emerging generation 
from your students in terms of questions or tensions they have between science and in the Bible or science and Christianity? Um, I think one of the things that I've been kind of surprised at is the, there's a fairly low level of biblical literacy, <laughs> which is sad in a Christian, in Christian teens. You're like, really? Um, the kids that I interact with are the ones that are already really science oriented to begin with. And I think a lot are feeling like when they get to me, that they've got somebody who's like, who's a pretty hardcore scientist and sure. pretty hardcore as your son has probably told you. And, but somebody with whom they can have conversations about, well, what is actually going on with this? And how about this? And how do you deal with, uh, you know, the creation evolution thing is always an issue. Uh, oh, still and, even right oh, now. Yeah, it's, it's always been an issue. Well, I mean, you know, we get kids from a wide variety of, of faith backgrounds and some of them sure. are more conservative and some are, are less so. I guess I would say I wouldn't say they were liberal because that's a different thing entirely. Um, but if you if you come out of a really um, you know really serious literalist background and you hit biology and genetics and my infectious disease class where we talk about the evolution of infectious organisms all the time, that's very jarring and unsettling. And it's like, well, how can you believe in that? And so then you have to sit them down and say, okay, realize. Um, science is a process and we look at this data and we try and interpret it as best we can. And if this is the data, then what is, how do you, what kind of conclusions do you draw? And, you know, we've always tried to sort of decouple the issue of, you know, if you don't believe this about evolution, then you're not a Christian. Well, that's not in any creedal statement I've ever seen, right? Certainly not any traditional ones, although I know there are there are some churches that have certainly drawn lines in the sand about that one. Right. Which is why BioLogos has been so helpful. Right. Because it, it's not universally true that everyone believes it's this way. And they don't necessarily know that. And they probably, they may not have met an adult or a scientist who is both a Christian and believes in different interpretations. And so a lot of what we do, you know, I'm sure your son went through this in ninth grade, right? Is say, well, here are the ways that various Christians have interpreted some of you know, the biological, certainly the biological issues around creation and evolution. Here are the ways that people have interpreted this. Um, there's a spectrum. And uh, as far as we're concerned, it's not a salvation issue. Uh, we all believe that God did it. We would love to know how, but we weren't there. And so we are left trying to use scientific methods to figure out how the mechanics of all this stuff went on. So and giving I, them the latitude to say there are different faith-filled Bible-believing Christians who come to different interpretations, not only about the interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2, but also about the science that we have available to us as humans. And there's a wide range of that. And so you can arrive at ortho and be an Orthodox Christian and still hold this. That is freeing for them if they come from like more dogmatic. Is, is that yeah. the right word? Dogmatic backgrounds? Is that the right word? It feels like the, the right I word. I think the term is literalist. Um, sure. which is a term that obviously is fraught with difficulty, especially if you've read John Walton, right? Yes. Like, do you mean literal as in the word or do you mean literal as in the meaning? And then that gets very complicated and they don't, they don't understand there's a difference. Um, and I think a lot of them have heard that, you know, scientists are anti-Christian and the fact is, and you know, I mean, this is maybe an awkward thing to say, but scientists don't care. Uh, Christianity is of no interest to scientists. It really isn't um, because they don't offer anything that is going to help us in our quest to understand the material universe. Right. And they're frankly, and this is kind of one of the things, one of the reasons why I thought maybe I should go into Christian education is that 
I was really turned off from the Christian faith by people who, you know, were Christian and believed nonsense, just things mm. that were completely not true, things that could not be substantiated uh, by data. And I'm talking about things about the fit about the material universe. Right. And I was like, well, if that's what you believe, then I'm out. And um, now that I've mm. come back around, it's like, you know, you really do need to be a well-trained scientist and a Christian to understand how all this stuff works. Yeah. And I think it's really important that you equip students who are Christian and who are thinking about going into the sciences because we have lots of them, you know, people who are going to go off and be doctors and nurses. Sure. And Especially in the Bay Area. To right. be well-trained in the sciences and they need to know that you can do science and not be in conflict with your faith. Right. And so I think, you know, especially the teachers of the King's Academy, I mean, certainly in the science department, we are we are examples that, hey, look, you know, I have a thriving relationship with Jesus and I have a rigorous scientific background and these things are fine. Yeah, they, 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 they are not in conflict the yeah. way that society wants to believe they are in conflict. So how do you help? Sometimes what happens is you see this all the time. Uh, a student goes to university for the first time and they encounter these um you know like you said the science course they begin to you know i think the term might be deconstruct they start to deconstruct their faith um because these questions are posed how do you help them deconstruct the deconstructing right what, what is I, what has been helpful for you what what kinds of things have you found with your students to help them deconstruct the deconstructions i think a lot of it is I think a lot of students who are raised in Christian communities have a lot of sort of preconceived notions or a lot of, there's just, there's stuff in there. They don't even know that they've taken for granted. That's never mm -hmm. been challenged. They've never asked the question. Yeah. Um, and then they get to college and they are forced to ask those questions and they feel like, Oh my gosh, this has been a part of my face so long. If I pull it out and look at it, everything's going to collapse when I'm not looking. So a lot of what I do or have done, certainly, you know, I've had a number of students where I've had, had conversations like this it's like okay so what you know what is it you know what is it about this that is troubling you so much um what is it that is threatening that you feel is threatening to your faith in jesus right not right. necessarily your christian community although that's that's very significant obviously because the community carries there's a lot of weight there yeah sure so what is it that you think is is threatening your understanding of who jesus is or who god is and you know why why does this why does this seem to invalidate your faith right um, because what is your faith really in is is my faith in a bunch of things i was taught in fifth grade in sunday school or is my faith really in my understanding of the bible and you know who god is and who jesus is and is revealed to be and i have obviously you know lots and lots of resources around any number of topics related to sort of the science and faith debate and, you know, BioLogos serves as a really great resource for that because they've got, you know, articles written by people who are both Christians and scientists. Um, you don't right. want to read something that's just written by a Christian bashing scientist or scientists bashing Christians because it gets nobody anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and usually what happens is somebody pulls out Richard Dawkins and starts whacking people over the head. And you're like, OK, he's got issues. And that's a lot of what he's saying is not particularly valid, but it sounds good when it's coming out of the mouth. Of the professor is going to give you an F. Right. Right. So a lot of that is just, you know, what are your, what are your, what are the underlying assumptions that you feel are really being shaken here? And is there a way to sort of, you know, once we figure out what those are, and once we figure out what the challenges are, is there a way that we yeah. can sort of come to equilibrium between 
you know, and maybe introduce a little tension into your faith, because I think a lot of a lot of students think, well, my faith is a very static thing. This is what I believe and I'm done. And, you know, as you know, as you proceed in your walk with Jesus, what you think, you know, changes yeah. and your yeah. understanding yeah. deepens and you're like, oh, because uh, yeah. so I read um, I read the fundamentals when I was had been a Christian for two years. Right. And those were written in the early 1900s. It's a very it's a fascinating look at like the his, at the sort of historical beliefs around Christianity. But now that I'm older, if I were to go back and read them, be like, yeah, I'm not sure that's entirely valid because again, the things I understand and the amount I've learned about Scripture and the Old Testament has has changed, and my perspectives might have changed. And I don't think students feel like their faith is something that grows that way. Or, at least not used. or that even these questions could be an opportunity to gain confidence in the scriptures or seek right. out answers. I love what you're saying. It's like, hey, look, I'm a safe place to come to get answers. I'm, right. uh, the church and Christians are places to go to get these answers. Let me, but then let me ask you a question. Sometimes, like one of the things you hinted at, and I don't know if we need to get into this, but it, it's interesting to me is um, you said that it was actually, it was Christians who were kind of turning you off. There is a sense in which in the U.S., there there does seem to be an anti-science sentiment oh, yeah. in some sectors. Oh yeah. Do you do you feel that? It, it, do you feel like that's a, a valid thing for people to say? And oh, yeah. um and how do we combat that as as Christians? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, there is definitely. And I've, I've had conversations with folks at Biologus about this before. I talked to a geologist who uh, he teaches in Alabama. Oh, boy. Which is a really interesting place to be a geologist, right? Because <laughs> uh, you have some very conservative, very hardline, a very literalist interpretation. Uh, churches, you know, mega churches there, really. And right. if you try and do geology, they go nuts. Uh, it's like, well, that's they not, see, you know, and, or they come up with these really, and you've seen the model. If you've read Dan Kimball's, you know, he's, yeah. he's, here's the, here's the cosmology of the, there was a guy who tried to like provide him with a mathematical scientific model in which, you know, in the center of the earth is not these spheres of molten rock, but there's actually the pillars and the water. And he's like, whoa, 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 what is going on? You know, it's, and you know, he was trying to scientifically prove ancient cosmology, like the exactly. pillars of the earth. Well, but if you believe that you have to interpret the Bible literally, then that's what you wind up doing. I, I see. I see. I and see. that, you know, that poses some really serious problems. For a geologist? Yeah, I can imagine. Right. Yeah. Well, or, you know, anything, really. It's just, sure. you know, sure. in the sciences that, fortunately, chemistry is relatively free of this kind of stuff because there isn't a whole lot about chemistry in the Bible that <laughs> I have to deconstruct. But it's there is definitely an anti-science bent. And I think... Uh, did you ever read uh, Mark Knowles' The Scandal of the Evangelical? I did. Mind? Yeah, that's kind of that a famous, a famous very book, telling right? to me. I was like, wow. Yeah. And part of it is, you know, stuff that happened in the 40s and the 50s. And or even oh, before that with the Scopes Monkey trial. Oh, even he traces it. Yeah, right. he traces it back to the, the fear of the elite institutions, the government, the courts and science back to the right. Scopes Monkey trial. And the withdrawal of Christianity away from the public sphere and because well, the of the embarrassment that, of basic questions. Right. Well, and I think part of the problem is that, you know, the church has sort of put some stakes in the sand. And, and I, I tell my students, like, the great thing about being a scientist is I can admit I'm wrong. The problem with being, you know, in authority in a religion is you're never allowed to be wrong. You can't say you're sorry. You can't 
admit that your understanding is flawed. Uh, now you technically you can, and you're supposed to, because we're supposed to be proceeding with humility. Right. But I have a feeling that what that the the problem arose out of an issue of well, who's in charge here? Yeah. And yeah. for the 19th parts of the 19th century, at least, Christianity was in charge, and everybody did what you said. And then society, you know, as if society was ever highly moral, uh, sort of deteriorated and went progressive and went scientific. And then mm -hmm. the Christians like, oh, that's got to stop. And we have to come up with a sort of our own parallel explanations. And those explanations can never change because we can't, you know, we, we can't change them. So we got stuck, you know, we got, and it's, it's really interesting when you look at, I've, you know, some of the evangelical techniques in the fifties and the sixties and some of the questions they raise, it's just like, nobody's even asking those questions anymore, man. Society has moved on. Science has moved on. You're arguing about the depth of the dust on the moon is irrelevant. I mean, it's like, it's just that Christians don't really move on. Like we find a set of arguments and we kind of stick. Mm. And then what happens is, yeah, society goes way past you and you're not in control. And then you're fighting a holding action, which is yeah. really not, that was not the goal ever. Because again, the church was never designed to be the place where you went and got, you know, truth about the material world. Um, the church is the place you go to get answers for why am I miserable? Um, why is my life a wreck? Why do I hate myself and everything? Um, how come I've done everything I've wanted to do and got everything I wanted to have and I still can't stand myself? And it's like, ah, well, I have the answers to those questions. Um, yeah. And you are not going to find those in science. You're not going to find those in culture because uh, everybody in culture is desperately unhappy and flailing around for the next best thing and they can't find any solution. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, the thing is that the church needs to be, church really should be focusing on what they can provide and stop trying to be like, well, we're just going to create a parallel and equally powerful institution to provide all truth because that's really not what it was ever designed to do. Um, that's certainly not the mission Jesus sent us on. Um, mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It, it um, I imagine also as a, actual PhD, it must frustrate you when people who are pastors who may have advanced degrees in the Bible and might be experts in the Bible um, claim to be experts in your field as well. Yeah, that is complicated. Um, and I mean, I understand. So I have a really a good friend. In fact, I taught all of his kids. They went through Kings and he, so he runs a molecular genomics company. And his father doesn't understand anything he does. And his father is super old school, super nuclear conservative, seven days or it's the highway kind of thing. And they're like, and he's just like, I just don't know what to tell him. It's like, I don't know how to explain it. Um, he's not, it's not that he's not capable of understanding. He just doesn't want to. He's not willing huh. to. And you're like, okay, that's okay. That's fine. You can, we can agree to disagree about this kind of thing. But yeah, it is very... Um, you know, I went to, was involved with the highway community for years and years and years and years, which, mm -hmm. you know, is a church that was founded as an outreach to Stanford students. And so we've had, we have scientists and PhDs on our board and we were very interested in engaging the science and faith discussion, which is kind of, kind of how I wound up with, you know, in contact with all the biologo stuff. But we were always, if the pastor was going to talk about something related to science, they would go find a scientist and talk to them. Yeah. They know it's like, don't. And you know, this goes, this goes back to Augustine. Um, again, if you, if you look, 
there's this quote which I will I printed it out because I can never remember it in detail, but it's it's basically the problem is you know, nothing is more shameful, deplorable, and dangerous than a situation where an infidel sees a Christian dealing with matters that he understands as if he was explaining Christian scriptures and doing it incorrectly. Oh, so, you boy. know, when a, when a pastor stands up and pontificates oh. about science, all of the scientists in the audience are like, wow, you don't know anything. And so wow. why should I trust I you listen to you about anything? Scriptures. Yeah. But it's like, oh. and now you're going to try and explain the scriptures to me. And you take those, and you're, and I'm supposed to trust that you're understanding the scriptures is better than what you just did. It's yeah. cringeworthy. It's it's kind of scary. <laughs> so talk. Okay, two last questions. One of them's quick. One one of them's kind of a summation. First, uh, talk to me about the Biologos Foundation and your work with them, and why you think it's a helpful resource, and how you found it to be a helpful resource, both to yourself and to students, and also I think to Christians in 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 sure. general. Yeah, so this was, well, if you've heard of Francis Collins, and who hasn't heard of Francis Collins these days, right? Um, he was another atheist who became a Christian in the course of his medical practice and then started this, you know, ran the Human Genome Project, uh, wrote a really awesome, awesome book about kind of his experience with that and how he sees, and this is kind of, you know, as a scientist and a Christian, everything that I'm studying is, as far as I'm concerned, revealing God's intricate design in creation and that so he founded this organization which he then had to step down when he was appointed to the, the NIH he had to step down from this and then Daryl Falk took over and they were basically saying hey you know there are because a lot of us I think a lot of us who are scientists and Christians have felt a little weird in church sometimes um, especially in churches where there's a lot more of the whole science is bad and you know rhetoric um, yeah, it, it can be really hard. And, you know, I'm sure. So Daryl Falk is at Point Loma and he said, yeah, you I you know, there are places I can't go to church because I'm a scientist. Wow. And I'm just like, oh, scientists are evil. It's like, dude, no, we're not. Um, hmm. but, that's feel that feels lonely and alienating, I bet. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. And then you're like, wow. So it's like you're you're part of the Christian community when they find out you're a scientist. It's like, oh, my goodness, you're one of them. And you're like, look, scientists have no beef with Christians. Um, atheists have a beef with Christians and they use science to sharpen their knives on. But that doesn't mean that science is bad. Science is just a tool. Science is just a way of getting certain kinds of information, right? And Biologos has always been very good about um, mm. sort of gathering scientists who are Christians and talking about their experience. Um, because I think that's really important that people understand that yes, there are a lot, there are actually lots of Christians who are practicing scientists out there. Um, they don't stand up in public and admit it because it's a tense place to be, especially in certain uh, types of religious settings. Yeah. But it provided a forum for those people to sort of share their experiences. Um, a lot of Biologos was originally, you know, college professors, people who taught freshman biology, sophomore biology, watch students go, you know, in Christian universities, watch students really struggling with modern biological theory. It's like, oh my gosh, it's ruining my faith. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I've, you know, and, you know, uh, one gal, April Cordero down at Point Loma, I remember because she was basically, she became a Christian. She'd been a biologist for years. And again, it's like, there's, again, there's no conflict here. It's just, it's all about the things that you assumed ahead of time. And so right. they, they provide a lot of resources. They provide a lot of support. Uh, they did a documentary in 2012 called From the Dust. Uh, Ryan Petty was at Highway and I worked with him on that. 
Um, met John Walton. We spent a lot of time, you know, in conferences and, you know, talking to him and just getting a sense of, you know, there's, I know when I read the old Testament that there's like 90% of it is going right over my head. It's like, I'm not a, I'm not a Bible scholar. I know I'm not. I need to find somebody who really has studied this in context. And I think Biologos has done a really good job of saying, Hey, here is, you know, how another way of interpreting this text that is founded in the culture it was written in, and I'm a big believer in context, and that that helps you then sort of, uh, what do you do? <laughs> sort of stands everybody down from their positions, like it has to be this, it has to be this, like, whoa, 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 let's back up and ask ourselves some bigger questions. Let's look at the bigger picture and, and sort of figure out what's going on. And they have, I mean, their, their webpage is full of stuff. And they're, and it's all, again, these are all people who are both Christians and scientists. Right. And asking questions in an environment where it's safe to do so, not bashing each other on Facebook or Twitter, mm-hmm. which I think is really, really helpful. And then and it, they provide a lot of, hey, here are other ways to interpret this. Here is the evidence for such and such a thing that people say doesn't happen. Well, here's the evidence. How would you, you know, how would you interpret this? And what does this mean? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's been a very civil place and a very safe place to have these kinds of conversations. And it's a mm-hmm. great place to point my students to because... Like yeah. I said, they they take their Bible very seriously, right? And take their science very seriously. And these are people who are both trained Bible scholars and trained scientists. So you feel like, okay, I'm getting an accurate representation of what's right. going on. Yeah. Doc Rose, thank you for spending so much time with us. Thanks for your vulnerability, for your honesty, and most importantly, I think, thanks for investing in a generation of students to show them that science. And a biblical Christianity, a deep belief in Jesus are not incompatible, but can be fully present in the same person. So thanks for that. And thanks for being Justice's homeroom teacher. There it is. Yeah, (laughs) good time. All right. Thanks, Doc. Once again, thanks so much, Doc Rosé, for coming on the show and taking so much time out of your schedule for us. Super appreciate it. Join us next week when we're diving into another difficult question. Is the Bible pro-violence? We're going to examine some of the more difficult and troubling passages in the Old Testament that on their face look like God is endorsing violence. What to make of that? Join us next week as we dive into that one. We'll see you soon.